Hello, I'm Chris Kreitschow, and this is the final episode of New Rust Station, a show about the Rust programming language and the people who use it. Happy coding! Yes, you heard that right. After three years and nine months of New Rust Station, this is the last regular episode of the show. More on that at the end. To explain why this is the last episode, I will tell you a story, and I will tell you a dream. And they are the same. The reason why I started learning Rust in the first place. And the story of this beautiful, almost four-year-long detour of a podcast, which has come to be such a significant part of my life. There are two critical things you have to understand about me for this story to make sense. First, I am particular about the tools I use. Put another way, I am kind of a snob about software, especially about UI. Second, from January 2013 through May 2017, I was enrolled in a Master of Divinity program, studying pastoral and practical theology. As is the case with most such degree programs, the school had a standard format for paper submissions. Documents had to be submitted in Microsoft Word documents with 12-point Times New Roman typeface setting, formatted exactly per the 8th edition of the Turabian Style Guide. But... I am a snob, as I said, and Microsoft Word is, in my opinion, a capable, if annoying, desktop publishing application and a horrible, horrible writing environment. You see, for years before going to seminary, I had been working in plain text formats, mostly for writing on my blog. I had long since become frustrated with what you see is what you get kinds of editors and tools like First Blogger and later WordPress, and so had since the late 2000s been experimenting with things like textile and restructured text and markdown. There were, and still today are, a number of very good plain text editing apps that simply got out of my way and let me write, and then I could generate HTML from those to publish wherever I liked. I had, frankly, fallen in love with this flow, and I had fallen in love for a very simple reason. It let me focus on the words I was writing. This is still exactly the approach I use today, and not only for my blog, but also for every script of this show. So I had a writing workflow I liked, and a submission format I hated working in. I began poking around to see if there was a way, then, to write Markdown, just like I was already, and generate Word documents from it. The answer was yes, and its name was Pandoc, and I was delighted. Over the next few years, I assembled a whole chain of tools for writing academic papers, until I had a flow that let me research, write, and even cite documents in a way that worked much better than trying to do so in Microsoft Word and EndNote. But I could still hand in my papers in precisely the format my professors required. There was friction, but there was much less friction than there was working in Word, at least for me and my admittedly fussy aesthetic sense. A little halfway through my Master of Divinity program, I had a day where I hit another one of those little friction points, though, and I started wondering what it would take to build something that would do exactly what I wanted, that would be a great flow. Some of the pieces I had assembled were good, but not optimized for this flow. Others were mediocre at best. And even those which were truly great, like Pandoc, were fairly arcane command line tools. As I was noodling on this idea, I realized that if I built a tool that made the research writing experience genuinely good, it might actually be a viable product in the world. After all, lots of people hate their writing workflows, especially in the context of research. 
the best options for people unwilling to put up with Word and EndNote involved then and involved today using command line tools with arcane invocations. I believed then and I believe now that a genuinely great research writing environment needs to exist in the world, and I might just be able to make a reasonable living while making researchers' lives better. I first concluded that in the summer of 2015, early summer of 2015. That'll be important. I knew from the start that I wanted to design this app for being cross-platform eventually. I'm a Mac guy myself, but the audience of research writers is far broader than people on Apple platforms. At the same time, and this is probably unsurprising given my aforementioned particularity about user interfaces, I have a very firm commitment to fully native user interfaces with great performance. That ruled out Electron immediately, despite my background as a web developer. Just as importantly, cross-platform also meant targeting iOS, given that I did and do a lot of my writing on an iPad. Even if I had wanted to use Electron, I couldn't have. But if I wanted to have shared business logic, and I wanted to target Windows someday, or maybe even Linux, I would need to write my shared business logic in libraries in languages that aren't Objective-C or Swift. That meant, or so I thought as I started looking around, C or C++. But I'd also spent the previous six years of my career writing C and C++ pretty much every day, and I really, really didn't want to write a layer of cross-platform business logic in either language. So I started trying to see if there were any alternatives, looking around on the internet and asking friends. One of them linked me to Rust. So Jeremy, if you happen to listen to this, Thank you. You literally changed my life that day. I spent a few hours that week working through Rust by example, and right away I knew three things. First, that Rust was exactly what I had been looking for. Second, that Rust was something really, really special. And third, that there was a lot of work to do in the space. Remember the timeline. This was early in the summer of 2015. Rust had hit 1.0, a matter of just a few weeks before I got this idea and started looking for options that weren't C or C++. Over the next few months, I kept mapping out the basic structure and design for this dream of an application. And I was also looking around everywhere for more resources about Rust. In particular, I was looking for a podcast, because then, as now, I do a lot of learning through podcasts, including often when running. There was one show about Rust at the time, but it did not seem like the hosts were going to keep it up for long, and spoilers, they didn't. At the same time, I was busy, and I needed a way to keep myself learning, and learning deeply and well as I tried to pick up another new language that I was not using for my day job at all. At this point, I had been producing my other main podcast, Winning Slowly, for about a year and a half, so I thought, you know, I bet I could do a podcast where I talk about learning Rust as a way to help myself keep learning Rust. The rest is, as they say, history, the history of this show. I did indeed learn Rust along the way, and fairly well. But a funny thing happens when you set out to make a show with the kinds of production quality and level of detail that I do. As I noted in my How the Sausage Gets Made bonus episode a couple months ago, these episodes take an enormous amount of effort and a huge amount of time to put together. For example, each of the FFI episodes I just published recently were 20 to 25 hours of work, each, not together. Now, that's on the high end for my teaching episodes, 
but not so much so that they were outliers. Plenty of other teaching episodes have taken that long to prep as well. Even the easiest episodes I produce, the news and bonus episodes, take me a good four to six hours apiece. And the shortest and easiest teaching episodes and crates you should know episodes still take me a good eight to 12 hours apiece to produce. That's a lot of time. And I also have a day job and I have a family and a church and a life that isn't my day job or podcasting. Which means that aside from filling up the pages of a notebook with thoughts and considerations and UI sketches over the last few years, I never made any actual progress on my original dream of a genuinely great research writing environment. In fact, I was barely able to make any progress even on much smaller projects like the static site generator I started all the way back in 2016 and which still doesn't work. So it's time. I have, at this point, covered every major topic on my list for teaching Rust. Though, of course, there will always be more to cover, and I could always cover it in more depth, because Rust is always growing and changing, and it's a very deep language. In just a few months, for example, async and await will be stable, and the whole language and ecosystem are going to move forward in a big way when that happens. But even as the language itself matures and the rate of change in that category hopefully slows down, the community is exploding. The number of things I could cover is exploding with it. The number of people I could interview is exploding with it. But at the end of the day, I set out to learn and teach Rust, and I think I have done the language itself justice along the way. And I still have that dream of building a great research writing environment. I have spent and I am very glad to have spent the better part of the last four years teaching Rust, but I'm ready to get back to the reason I started learning Rust in the first place. Before I go, I also want to offer a couple reflections on Rust itself. Four years ago, Rust was a dream and a promise. It was a dream of a world in which safe systems level programming was possible and accessible to everyone, anyone who could program. And it was a promise of stability as we all tried to make that a reality without breaking things all the time. There is still a long way to go in fulfilling those. But we've kept that promise so far, and in a very real way, the dream is being fulfilled. People, I've talked to them, who always found C and C++ too intimidating, too different from the other kinds of high-level languages they use, and most of all, at the end of the day, too dangerous and scary, have found in Rust an opportunity to write systems-level software. Systems level both in terms of performance and in terms of the kinds of programs they can write. And the past four years of polishing have sanded off a lot of the rough edges that were there with 1.0, the many incidental rather than essential points of difficulty and complexity. What is left, increasingly, is a language which exposes the real complexity of writing fast, safe software, but which also guides you through how to handle that complexity. And the result is a joy. Over the past few months at work, I have been working on the Volta project, which is a node toolchain manager written in Rust, and the experience has just been delightful top to bottom. Even more than my own delight in writing Rust, though, has been seeing other developers who had little or no experience with Rust before coming to the project who are enjoying it and excelling with it and finding it pretty straightforward. It's a really beautiful thing to see. I think the future for Rust is really, really bright. In so many ways, the last four years were just the beginning. Most people who will ever use Rust haven't yet. Most programs that will ever be written in Rust haven't been yet. And the most important changes Rust is bringing to the industry haven't been felt yet. 
I cannot wait to participate in all of this in a whole new way in the months and years ahead. Finally, here at the end, I want to say a heartfelt thank you to everyone who has supported the show in any way along the way. I have to give credit here most particularly and most deeply to my wife, Jamie, who encouraged me when I thought about starting this project in the first place, and who has made the space for me to do the work this podcast requires all along the way, even though we've been busy and had many other things going on in our lives. As an aside, hosting a video game podcast with her is far and away the most fun I have with any podcasting I do. If you like Mass Effect and you think it would be a wildly different experience to hear me podcasting with my wife and flirting with her and laughing and joking with her as we talk about a video game, check out Mass Affection. Second, I want to thank my little girls, Elaine and Catherine. They have been the most enthusiastic fans I could possibly have asked for along the way. And when I started this, they were just three and one. The older of them turned seven today. I just had some delightful breakfast pancakes with her. And the other one turns five in three days. And they've been here for all of Neurostation and been my biggest fans. And I'm really grateful to them. Third, my friend Stephen Caradini, with whom I host my other podcast, Winning Slowly, has been a steady encouragement, a great sounding board, especially as I considered crowdfunding ideas like Patreon, and generally another enthusiastic fan, and extra credit to him because he doesn't program at all, just like Jamie, my wife, doesn't program at all. I also want to say thank you to everyone who has sponsored the show along the way. You have made it far, far easier for my family to see this as a worthwhile investment of my time. Thanks then to both Parody and Manning, who sponsored the show at a corporate level, but thanks even more to the many of you who've chipped in, everything from a single dollar once to hundreds of dollars over many, many months. All of your generosity and support have deeply amazed me. Last but not least, thank you. Thank you all so very much to everyone who has ever listened to the show over the last few years. So far as I can tell, the total number of people who have ever listened to the show is tens of thousands. I don't know how many tens of thousands. There are a good five to 8,000 of you who tune in to every episode. Hundreds of you have emailed me over the life of the show, and this too amazes me. And I am profoundly grateful for your time and your attention. I don't take them lightly at all. It is not an exaggeration to say this show changed the course of my life. I am where I am today professionally, in no small part because of the show. And if, as I hope, Neurostation has also contributed in some small way to Rust's success, to where Rust is today, well, I'm profoundly glad and grateful to have been some small part of that as well. I will still be around on Twitter, both at Chris Kreitcho and at Neurostation. And you can always email me at either hello at Neurostation.com or hello at ChrisKreitcho.com. If you want to follow along with that research writing app project as I actually pursue that dream, I've set up a mailing list for it at buttondown.email slash rewrite. If you want to support me as I do it, including getting more nitty-gritty details kinds of updates than you will in the newsletter, you can do so at patreon.com slash As for Neurostation itself... I expect to keep the show online indefinitely. My hosting costs are tiny, and so this will be here as long as I think it has any value. So feel free to keep pointing people to it as a learning resource. 
I have, of course, paused all ongoing contributions on Patreon. But if you decide to send me a thank you via some other service listed on the show website, I will, of course, not complain. But of course, I also never expect that. This is here to serve the Rust community. On a final note, keep the show in your podcast app. I make no promise ever to post another episode here, but I also make no promise not to. If someday I have something I just have to say about Rust, well, you know. Thank you all again for listening, and happy coding. <laughs>